welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now today's message. It is so good to see all of you here. Uh, these seats will be. We got another one of these at the 11 o'clock service. We've got a lot of folks engaging the world that Jesus died to save uh, over the coming weeks. So it must be summertime, right? Uh, a lot of those. And I mentioned our, our student ministry earlier. Here, here's what you need to know. Out of roughly 80 to 90 kids in that program, sometime over the next year, more than 50 of them will be engaging the world. You should thank God for that. Sure. Um, so that's something we need to pray about. That's something that we, we got to have their backs, spiritually and otherwise. And uh, it's a sign that the church doesn't just talk about God's assignment for us. We actually take it seriously. And I've told some of you parents, you got to be careful being in a church that takes God's word seriously, especially around engagement with the world, because our kids will eventually think we actually mean what we're saying, and they will be on the other side of it, and that that is a good thing. That's exactly where he wants us. So I, I am one grateful pastor this morning. Uh, if you have a copy of God's word, if you could join me in the book of Malachi. Now, if you're not familiar with the Bible, it's divided into two testaments, Old Testament on the left, New Testament on the right. This is the very last book of that one on the left, the Old Testament. So it should be fairly easy for you to find today. This is the last of a 12-week series that with the exception of Easter and Mother's Day, we began several weeks ago, a couple, couple three months ago, simply entitled Turn, moving verse by verse, prophet by prophet, through the minor prophets, talking about this idea of repentance, that God calls us to repent. These were 12 men who called us to repent in 12 somewhat different, sometimes radically different ways, but, but echoing what Martin Luther told us uh, a half a millennia ago, that all of a Christian's life is about repentance. And there are several different ways in which we are called to repent. I, I pray that, well, that this has been edifying to you. You know, the temptation is to say, I hope you've enjoyed this, but can we just be honest? We don't always enjoy God's Word, do we? Sometimes it, it rubs up against us like sandpaper. Sometimes it pierces through our, our soul, and it feels like it's hit a vital organ, and that's because the Lord, even though through all that pain, is doing some surgery on us to make us better and to bring us healing. So I don't hope that you enjoyed this, but I do hope uh, that you've been blessed by it, that you've been edified by it. I pray that you, kind of like me in, in preparing this, have learned and that God's kind of pulled the blinders off of your spiritual eyes the way he has me. And Okay, there's this whole other area of my life over here I had not even given consideration to uh, and that you can get closer to him and to repent. And today, we look at the last of those. Now, anybody who's been in this room, who's in this room, who's ever been a parent, especially if you have raised fully at least one child and you've been through every stage of their life, you are intimately familiar with the practice of repeated correction. That's that experience of having to tell somebody the same thing over and over and over 
again, and you've experienced along with that, the exasperation of occasionally having to ask your offspring, how many times am I going to have to tell you? I want this. I want that. This is good for you. That is bad for you. Stop eating those crayons. You know, that's that sort of thing. The first sort of big test for that is potty training. Can I get a witness? Some of y'all are like, oh, gosh, I almost didn't make it today because I'm in that stage of life. I mean, it's, it's rough. I think the Smithsonian should have an exhibit exclusively dedicated to that first pair of regular underwear that we all just threw away. I really do. Uh, that is a battle, right? And they'll, and they'll do fine for a little while, and then they'll, then they'll relapse. And sometimes it takes other people longer than it takes other people. I, I have a pastor friend of mine, his youngest child, who is now in his early 30s and would likely be mortified that this story's still going around, but I'm going to tell it anyway because it's funny, right? Um, when he was almost four years old, he was still in diapers. That should make some of you feel better. Yeah, and, and he just, he refused. It wasn't an issue of incontinence or it wasn't anything medical. He was just a stubborn kid. And as the story goes, he was in the bathtub one day and his mom was helping him bathe. And he just looked up at her rather matter-of-factly and said, Mommy, this is your lucky day. <laughs> he never messed himself again, at least not on purpose, right? And so to the parents, let me tell you, trust this guy who's, gotten three past that stage. There is a lucky day in your future. I can promise you that. But here's the thing. After that lucky day, you're going to pray for some more lucky days. All right? Because it doesn't stop with, with potty training. It goes to something. I mean, in very short order, after they stop pooping themselves, you find yourself constantly talking to them about things like the cleanliness of their room, about turning the light off when they leave their room. Somewhere around 2008. I mean, our family wasn't even finished yet. We didn't even have Gracie yet. And I, overnight, it was like I became my own father, just stalking around the house, turning off lights, grumbling under my breath, reaching that point that Jeff Foxworthy talked about where I'm just staring, I'm, I'm standing outside the house, staring at the meter, just yelling, somebody turn something off, right? This thing's spinning like a top. You people are killing me. And before you get all of that straightened out, they have become legally eligible to learn how to drive. And then that gets layered, right, on, on top of everything else. And that experience, as, as you know, if you've been there, it involves hours and hours and hours. There's a reason the state of West Virginia requires 50 logged hours behind the wheel before they let you try for your driver's test. It, you need that. I mean, the best way to learn how to drive is to drive. Just do it. But, but driving, as you know, especially in today's busy schedules with families, it involves hours and hours and hours and weeks and weeks and weeks of teaching them maneuvers. And all of a sudden, they, they get it perfected. Like, wow, they made that turn, and, and they, they met that car, and, and they obeyed all the signs and the traffic light. I never once grabbed the emergency brake. Not once. Like, this is great. And then... There'll be a period of absence. They've got a really rough week at school, lots of homework. Maybe it's exam week, or maybe you've got a really rough week at work, or for whatever reason, you can't drive for a solid week. And then seven days later, you get back in the car with them, and they go, okay, which one's the break? And you're like, you've got to be kidding me. And it's over and over and over that you're making these corrections. And sometimes in the middle of those moments, it's hard to remember, is it not, that that we're not even really doing this ultimately for our benefit. 
We're doing it for theirs. We're doing it because, you know, it's not just that you don't want to clean up after your teenager who has not learned how to go to the bathroom. It is that they're not going to keep a job very long where they keep pooping themselves in the cubicle next door. Their, their co-workers, don't, they don't want to put up with that, right? So you're getting them ready for what's coming next. It's not just that, that you're tired of taking them everywhere and eventually you want them to be able to escort themselves to the football field or the soccer field. It's that you understand that in the Western world, driving a car is a fairly essential life skill. I mean, you, you don't have to in order to survive, but it'd be great to not be dependent on other people and be able to do that. It's not just your own electric bill that you're worried about. Although Lord knows now that we're from three kids down to two, my water bill, especially, I, there's a noticeable difference, but you want them to have a future that involves some measure of financial security, and you know that at least part of their financial security is indexed to wise choices, like even the simple ones, like turn off a light when you exit a room. And so we correct, and we correct repeatedly until the point of exasperation. And we do it because we love our children, and we know that one day we're not going to be there. There's going to be a ticket or an accident or a job loss, and they're going to be states away, and we're not going to be able to just run over there and take care of it for them. And eventually, our bodies are going to be in the ground, and our souls are going to be with Jesus, and they're not going to be able to call us again to get that advice. We equip them because we know eventually they're, they're not going to be around, or we're not going to be around. And, and Scripture tells us that God is like a good parent. Actually, God is the perfect parent. And, and if you if you're struggling, whether it's the potty training, the driving, the, you know, they're, they're little hellions running you out of it, just keep this in mind. The perfect parent has more problem children than anybody else in the universe. Okay? It, it's going to be, you just, you just keep doing the right thing. You just keep your head down. You be faithful to Jesus. You be faithful to that kid. You love that kid. And, and then you'll be as much as you can be, at least, like the Lord. And here's, here's what we're going to learn from Malachi. It is that while we will never be without his presence... The Old Testament in this period of history is warning Israel there's going to come a time when, we're, when you're going to be without his words. That was prophesied actually back in Amos chapter 8, verse 11. We see that prediction. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread or thirst for water, but of the hearing of the words of the Lord. And for Israel, those final words come through this prophet named Malachi. Now, it's good, again, to remember that all these guys are kind of preaching, especially in the latter end of the Minor Prophets, they're, they're preaching at roughly the same time. And so Haggai, that we covered two weeks ago, was like, get off your blessed assurance. You're being lazy. You're being slothful. Get back to work. There's a temple to be built. Zechariah comes behind him, enabling and, and really supporting that message, but giving uh, Israel a wider view. It's not just about you not being lazy. It's about the fact that Messiah is coming, and you don't want to miss this. So get both your house and the Lord's house in order. But like the children that we raise, Israel didn't listen. Even Haggai, they got the temple built, a bit of an anomaly. And then apparently they went back to sloth and spiritual complacency. And they continue to face these, these powerful declarations in apathy. So Malachi is the last word. I'm going to send, God says, one last prophet. 
Now, his name just simply means my messenger. And there's actually several phrases here. If you were able to read this in the original languages, you would see those used interchangeably. And sometimes you wonder, is it saying Malachi or is it just using the generic messenger? And it's caused a little bit of confusion. Some have suggested even, and this goes all the way back to John Calvin, like almost a half a millennia ago, that maybe this is Ezra writing under a nom de plume, a pen name. Okay, like Nora Roberts, doesn't live too far from here. Y'all know that's not her real name, right? Because she don't want any of y'all showing up unannounced and asking her to autograph books, right? I don't, I don't know what the reason would have been for this. And, and honestly, regardless, that this is a prophecy that's addressing three primary sins of Israel that were occurring during this period and at the beginning of what we call the intertestamental period. So Malachi is going to preach, then there's going to be radio silence for four centuries, and then Messiah. Right, then the coming of Jesus. And so those three sins are as follows. Breaking the Sabbath, refusing to tithe, and then intermarrying. Meaning that men, because it was a patriarchal society, were taking wives not from within the covenant community of Israel. They were going outside that covenant community and they were marrying the daughters of pagan nations. All right, So that's, that's what's happening. And at least two of these three don't directly apply to us anymore. I'll explain why that is in just a moment. And so you may wonder, well, then why would we look at the Old Testament? What in the world would this do? I mean, if the tithe was part of the Mosaic Covenant and it's been fulfilled in Christ, doesn't mean we're not supposed to be generous and we're not supposed to give. It just means God doesn't tie us to a, a particular percentage any longer since the resurrection of Jesus. Then what does this tithe thing have to do with me? We don't worship on the last day of the week. We worship uh, on the first day of the week corporately, and that came out of more of a, the movement that, that responded to the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And so really, that we don't really observe the Sabbath anymore. What in the world would these commands have to do with us? Well, I'll just tell you, behind every Old Testament command is a New Testament principle. All right, There's some truth underneath there that we need to glean. So for example, it really doesn't matter whether or not you cut your grass yesterday. In fact, your neighbors, after all this rain, probably hope you did. But the issue of Sabbath is you can break it by dishonoring the cycle of rest and rhythm that God created for your human body. He created your body with limits. This is why both laziness and workaholism are rooted in the same sin. All right? it's, a, it's, it's a denial, a betrayal, an abuse of the physical temple that he gave me. Uh, the tithe, where is that? Well, we have a consumeristic sort of mindset that sometimes betrays a, a lack of value and a kingdom priority. And so maybe, I don't know, and then, and then you get into this mentality, like, well, do they really need my money? Well, that's not really the point. We'll get to that in just a moment. And then on that third one, intermarrying, well, absolutely nothing has changed because the New Testament tells us we're actually still obligated to that one as written. And I'll explain why that is in just a moment. But, but the main point of Malachi is this, Messiah's coming and all of history is about to change and the seed that was prophesied all the way back to our first parents in the garden is about to appear. And in the middle of all that, you guys are just looking at this like, eh. There's this spiritual apathy that reveals you're not ready from him, for him. And, and so Malachi channels that, the, the, it, this complacency. The Lord, like an exasperated parent through Malachi, is warning them over and over and over and over. Malachi is going to be the last, and he will address God's people six times. So I want to cover those in turn with you 
And we'll come back at the end and say, what, what do we get out of this in terms of how we repent? Because the theme is this, to turn from death to life. Malachi is saying this, this apathy is going to lead to spiritual death for you. Maybe even physical death, for all I know. You need to turn to life. So address number one begins with God's unconditional love toward Israel. Chapter 1, verse 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you. God always begins and ends with that. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? It's kind of like a spoiled kid. You know, I put a roof over your head. I put food in your belly. I put clothes on your back. I, I provide for you. When you fall and scrape your knee, I'm there, and I'm putting the bandages on, and I'm insuring for your care, and I got you doctors and dentists and all this stuff. Yeah, but you didn't take me to Disney this year. We took you the last three, right? That's Israel here. How have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob. But Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, rebuild, but I will tear it down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border. Of Israel. We know he's great even beyond us because of his special favor to us. And so here's the short version. God's saying, how have I loved you? I haven't treated you like Edom. I haven't treated you like those other nations. I made a promise to your father Abraham, and I mean to keep it even though you're just as stupid as all the rest of the other nations. You're just as insignificant as all the others. All that added up. And, and so I have kept my promise. I'm going to keep keeping my promise and even when I judge you, I do it because I love you. And then when we get to the New Testament, we read places like Hebrews 12, that the Lord disciplines those he loves. If he loves you, he disciplines you. Malachi is about to expose the sins of God's people, not because God hates them, but because those sins are going to lead them to destruction and death. That, that's a countercultural message, even within the church today, that, that has this sort of a kind of assumption, as apparently they did in Malachi's day, that if God loves me, he's not going to confront me with anything, especially if it's something I particularly enjoy. Nothing quite so frustrating as a pastor as to have somebody come, confess their sins, you start talking about helping them get over that so that's not a part of their regular rhythm of life anymore, and they go, yeah, but I, I enjoy it so much, and after all, doesn't God want me happy? God was like, I'm tired of my spouse. I'm ready to get out. Have they broken the covenant? Have they cheated on you? Are they beating you? Are they? No, I'm just, I'm just so tired of this, and God wants me to be happy. There you go. What's the assumption behind that? Well, if he really loved me, he wouldn't have me do the hard thing. If he really loved me, he wouldn't confront. He, a God that is always affirming I don't know if you've ever checked that against the God of the Bible, but that ain't this God. It's just not. And it's not a God of love. And I, I think it's important that the prophecy start that way because Malachi is going to get harsh with God's people. He fronts the whole thing with a passionate declaration of God's love for them. 
And you may ask, well, well, now how do I know the difference? Because there are, right, like really judgy people. There's really judgy religion. There's places where I feel controlled, manipulated. That's absolutely true. How do you know the difference? Well, there's a couple of different ways. The Lord confronts you. Your enemy accuses you. That's why he's called the accuser of the brothers and the sisters, I think we could add. I think we get the, the apostolic meaning there. Satan accuses. Satan points the finger. Satan's not trying to correct anything. He's just wanting to tell you how bad you are. The Lord confronts because he loves and he wants to see change. Satan attacks you. The Lord attacks your sin. The Lord comes after that and says that, that activity, that, that preference, proclivity, that disposition of your heart, that is not good for you. That's going to lead you to a place of spiritual death. I don't want you there. And, and here's what we can know from Malachi. Whatever our circumstances or feelings, even as God confronts our sin, he loves us. So that's address number one. God's love for Israel, God's love for you, God's love for me is no less, guys. He loves you. That's why he's telling us these things. Address number two, God's exposure of Israel's offenses. Verse 7 of chapter 1, By offering polluted food upon my altar, when you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? Essentially, without going into all the detail of what that meant within the sacrificial system, he's saying you are not bringing your best. And by not bringing your best, you are profaning the Lord's table and you're doing it in the Lord's presence, okay? Your best is going somewhere else. It's not coming to me. There are all kinds of ways that that can be manifest in today's world. I remember my, my first pastorate, small church in Kentucky. We had a food pantry, kind of like we do here, and we would give food out to people that needed it. And, and at least once a month, our team that ran that ministry would have to go down stairs where that pantry was and they would have to move through all of the canned food and the other kinds of food that had been donated and we would throw away more than half of it because it was out of date somebody thought that was good enough not giving your best right it, it's that sort of thing. i can't count the number of times somebody had an old couch somebody had an old something or another and they just said you know I mean, you know goodwill wouldn't want this i know what yeah let's yeah get yeah, goodwill they'll they'll tell us they don't want it i mean look at all that dog hair look at that vomit like stain like look at look at that. oh i you know what we'll give it to the church we'll give it to the church and we're not the only faith community that does this. Our friend who Ernessa Fariad, many of you have met her precious lady. Uh, her mosque is at Adams. And when the uh, situation happened in Afghanistan and we were cooperating with them to help the refugees who were coming in from that just absolute catastrophe, she, she would have people donating socks that their children had worn to the point that the band around the ankle that's supposed to hold the socks up was broken. And, and Hurry's... Hurry's not bashful. She put it on social media. Who did this? Right? She's calling them out for it. But this is the kind of thing he's talking about. It's the sort of thing going on here, and it's being enabled by the priests. Chapter 2, verse 1. And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. You, you come to the temple, you participate in the liturgy, you offer a sacrifice, and you have polluted my altar. New Testament language kind of sounds like this. You can come to church, you can raise your hands, you can speak in tongues, you can participate and blaspheme me in doing every bit of that. 
That's a strong accusation. It makes you want to stop, but it does me at least. We go across, stop and go, wow, is, it, is that really what I, is that saying what I think it says? A, a number of years ago, a pastor friend of mine got in some real trouble because he was trying to be creative. He didn't mean any harm, but he was going to preach a message on hell, and he thought it would be a good idea to lead out in the worship service with a number from ACDC. And you all know which song it is, right? Now, he got in trouble. I imagine I would get in trouble if I chose to do a certain thing. And there were. There were a lot of people that really thought that was offensive. I was one of them. I was like, brother, I love you. I, I, man, I think you crossed the line there. I really do. I think you need to listen to your elders. I think that was incredibly unwise. There's a lot of people that would never do something like that. But the way they live between Sundays, they may as well. It's just blasphemous. You know, where I grew up, there were these things called blue laws. On Sunday, there were certain kinds of businesses that weren't allowed to be opened. So if you, if you wanted some bourbon for Monday night, you better get it on Saturday. Because on Sunday, you couldn't get it. Finally, they, they loosened it up. I guess you could say South Carolina went liberal. And, uh, and, and you could buy beer. Not the strong stuff, but you could get beer. Maybe it was just light beer. I don't know. You could buy it like after 1 o'clock on Sundays. Right? You remember that? Like, you don't, you, you can do whatever you want out here. Now, y'all know where we are on that issue at Covenant, okay? Bible says don't be drunk. It also says wine is a good gift from a gracious God. We, we try to live that out here as best we can. So, yeah, we don't think that's a sin. But here was, here was the interesting thing about that is if you believe it's a sin, why are you segregating one part of, of, it, of your life from another part of your life? It was literally like, okay, we, we can't do it. And the people that would go and consume it at 2 p.m. were like, yep, nothing, nothing before 1 o'clock. It was like, okay, well, after, what is it like after 1 p.m. God can't see? What are you doing? You're segregating one part of your life from another part of your life. And, and, and between Sundays, address 2 here in Malachi is a reminder God always sees. Every bit of it. When you're not bringing your best, when you're not giving your best, God sees that. And then he gets more specific in address number three. This is God's condemnation of marriage to unbelievers. Chapter 2, verse 11. Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. Now, this is one of these subjects that's really uncomfortable to talk about, especially today. God's expectation beyond the old covenant is that we are faithful to him in our marriage relationships as well. And to our young people, I would say, what that means is also your dating relationships. Well, that's not marriage. Well, if you're not seeking out a mate, why are you dating? We're going to have that discussion later, right? That You can only honor God that way if you choose a mate who also worships the one true God. Now, I want to say this up front. I know some of you, you married an unbeliever. I love you. I'm not trying to judge you. Don't hear Pastor Joel coming down on you, talking about how wicked you are, anything like that. I'm going to say some stout stuff here in just a minute, and I want you to hear me aiming that at people who are not there yet, okay? This is preventative maintenance. Be very careful who you choose as a mate. And there's all kinds of attempts. We rationalize this away under the guise of evangelism. You know, we call it missionary dating. Well, well maybe, 
Maybe he'll come to Christ. And you know what? Sometimes that does happen, but not often. Not often. When it happens, we thank God for that around here. We do. Anytime somebody comes to faith in Christ, we're not concerned with the circumstances. We rejoice over that conversion. But, and I'm thankful when those relationships, in spite of the unwise approach, result in somebody coming to Christ. But most of the time, that actually works in the opposite direction. They're going to pull you down. You're not going to pull them up. And so don't ever let God's grace in some of those other situations justify foolishness and disobedience. You say, well, I thought that was an old covenant thing. Well, again, behind every specific old covenant command is a New Testament principle. And we find that principle in 2 Corinthians 6. Paul says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? All right, let me, let me, let me read that passage again. He he has married the daughter of a foreign god. Some of you need to think about your relationships like that and be wise in this. Oh, but Pastor, he's so cute. So's a puppy. <laughs> Puppies are cute. They lick your face. It's wonderful, but, but they, they're never going to pay the bills. They're never going to be the support that you need, and a puppy is never going to lead you spiritually, and neither is an unconverted man. Pastor, she's hot. Yeah, so's hell. What do you want me to do? I can't believe you said that about my boyfriend, my girl. I didn't say it. God said it. You, you've got to figure this out, okay? I love you. Here in Malachi, every such relationship that the prophet is calling out diluted Israel's exclusive covenant with God. And today, it's, it's, it's why I have to turn away sometimes when somebody goes, what, what about their relationship? Well, I don't know if they have a relationship, and I, I want to be as humble as I can. I'm not trying to be judgy. But I was like, look, I can't do this. I'm going to stand in front of Jesus one day, and he's going to look at me and go, there's that wedding, and you officiated it. Why? And I'm not going to have reason. There's not going to be any rationalization that gets around the clear teaching of the Word of God. And the reason is because every wedding vow ever made with a non-Christian is a vow that says my allegiance to my Creator takes second fiddle to this other person. That's otherwise known as idolatry. Okay, I'm done now. I love y'all. I do. This is what it says. I'm just delivering the mail. Keep that in mind. Don't throw anything. Here's the big idea. These decisions lead to death. And your creator in mind wants you to choose life. And so address one is about his love. Address two is I'm exposing some of these offenses. Address three, I'm drilling down a little deeper into this idea of interfaith marriage. And then comes address number four, God's warning of coming judgment. Chapter three, verse two, who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. And we talked about this earlier, that the wrath and judgment of God is not him losing. God has never lost his temper because that would suggest that he's in not any longer in control of it. All right. God has complete emotional control. You don't have to walk on eggshells around him. He's not some out of control, angry deity. 
His wrath is rooted deeply in his nature as righteous, which means his disposition against all unholiness is settled. And judgment's coming. And there's no way, it's like a freight train. It's just, there's no way to stop it or slow it down. Paul presents this truth using the picture of a conquered city in, in the ancient world. He says in 2 Corinthians 2, For we are the aroma of Christ to God, among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. And the reference there is to flowers and fragrances that were laid down in preparation for a conquering king's inaugural visit to a newly acquired city. So whether it happened by annexation or military conquest, those flowers are laid down. You walk outside your house, and the smell of that overwhelms you, and you know the king is coming. And those flowers and that scent can represent one of two things for you. If you're someone who's going to continue to rebel, it's going to be the smell of death, even though it smells really nice. If you are going to submit to his rule, it's the smell of life. And Malachi asks, who can endure that day? God still loves his people, so he sends them warning that there's, there's still time. There's still time for that, that fragrance to mean something sweet to you, but you need to repent. And one of the evidences you need for repentance is that you're cheap. And that brings us to address number five. That's God's condemnation of Israel's lack of generosity. This is the infamous verse that preachers get in trouble for all the time. Chapter 3, verse 8, will a man rob God, yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? And he answers, in your tithes and your contribution. So a little background here. Leviticus chapter 27. You see that mention of the tithe? It was a prescribed command underneath God's covenant with Moses. One-tenth, 10%, everything you own, given back to the Lord. It kept up the temple. It helped support Israel as a civil society. It was a reminder that the Lord owns everything. Here at Covenant, we're not going to pretend that that's still in effect when no other part of the, of the Mosaic Covenant is still in effect. One-tenth, I don't, I don't believe that that percentage is binding on any of you I, any more than I think you are prohibited from going to Mission Barbecue this afternoon and eating an entire pound of pork. That's fine too. Why is that? Because Christ has fulfilled the covenant. Now, for those of you that are really cheap, Here's what comes next. It doesn't stop there. God still, remember, Old Testament command, New Testament principle. God still owns everything. Everything. And so the New Testament, while it doesn't demand a certain percentage, does demand sacrificial, regular, joy-filled giving and radical generosity. And the principle of the tithe that we read in Malachi is this. What you invest is actually a betrayal of what you truly value. That was true in Malachi's day. That's why the Lord says in verse 10, test me. You can trust me with your offerings. And when you don't trust me, that's reflected in your lack of offerings. And that, that's a touchy subject anytime you bring it up in a church, no matter how the church is doing. And we're doing really well right now. And I, I brought this up to a church member actually just a couple of days ago that Amy and I had the opportunity to spend a few hours with, and I, I mentioned that, you know, this, this series is coming up, and, you know, here's the thing. We're actually doing quite well right now. God's people are giving generously, radically. I, I don't want to be one of these preachers that's always about the money, and never it's never enough, and it's all, all that kind of stuff, and, 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 
and we're, we're meeting our obligations. And, and I also know, contrasted with that, there's, there's all this inflation and like household budgets are under constraint and, and everything else. I, I want to be kind to God's people even as I, as I teach them. And, and the fact is we, we're really, I mean, we're, church isn't about to go broke. There's nothing like that. So why would I, and this, this person reminded me, he said, this is not for you and it's not for the church, it's for them. They need this. They need this. To, so to that brother, you know who you are, thank you. And to the rest of you, it's his fault, okay? <laughs> but let me say a couple things. We really are doing fine. This is not one of those moments where I interject into a normal sermon series to tell you that we're about to go broke or we got this big bill we can't pay or that. God's people have been generous. Thank you for that. But the second thing I will tell you is, inevitably, there's somebody in here that's not giving their best. And you're not really hurting us right now, but you may be hurting yourself. This is for your good. God points to this act because we all know that what we truly value is reflected in our banking apps, isn't it? It really is. And this address gets to the heart of the matter. Don't miss out. Don't miss out. God's condemnation of their lack of generosity. And then this sixth and final address is a summary of the day of the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 1. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. That day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. A day is coming. Some of you are going to death. Some of you get eternal life. That's the call. That's, the, that's, that's Malachi in a nutshell. Turn and repent from death to life. And these words begin the last that Israel will hear from God for four centuries. The coming of Jesus. That's the next time they'll hear from him. Two main ideas here. Remember God's law and return to obedience. Remember the Lord's coming. And then the radio goes silent for four centuries. Now, what does that, what's all this look like? I mean, what does repentance feel like for those of us reading this text now but are on the other side of the covenant that Malachi keeps referring to? We're on the other side of the fulfillment. We're on the other side of a Messiah who's already come. He's been identified as Jesus of Nazareth. He's died and he's risen again and ascended to the Father. Well, the, the author of Hebrews, I'll go back to him again, Hebrews 8, reminds us that everything about that old covenant to which Malachi refers is a foreshadowing of eternal things. And that eternal message is still at heart, a call of God for every human being on the planet to turn from death to life. What you're doing is not in sync with my word, with my plan. It's going to lead to death. But then Malachi leaves us with three promises. You ready for these? Promise number one, life is found in the word of God. In the midst of all the uncertainty, the unreliability, even of our own capacity to obey, this prophecy begins with the oracle of the word of the Lord. Every single time God's people get in trouble in the scriptures, God speaks and the trouble starts to subside. This is the Ten Commandments. I, at some point, i got to do a whole 10-week thing, and we'll just cover the Ten Commandments. Everybody thinks the Ten Commandments are just about, don't do this and don't do it. No, the Ten Commandments are the sound of freedom. 
400 years of slavery. They get freed. They get to the other side of the Red Sea. But they're out there. They're wandering. There's not a generation alive that knows what it's about to live like free people because they've always been slaves. And then comes Exodus 20 and verse 1. The Lord spoke freedom. This is how free people live. This is how free people flourish, right? When everything around you seems un uncertain, and I, I probably, some of you are older than me, probably remember harder times. I, I don't remember a time in my adult life when there's been more uncertainty in the world, in the culture. Listen, the word of the Lord stands forever. It points us to Jesus, who is the same yesterday, today, forever. And so while we're living in a day where so much is being revealed as unreliable and that it's just shaken society as a whole to its very core, there's a hope, brothers and sisters, that cannot be found in that money you've got invested or those, that slate of politicians you plan on voting for next November. It's in the Messiah declared in these pages on Christ, the solid rock I stand. This is God's word. This is life. You got to come here. When you don't feel like it, when it doesn't seem right, you obey it. You go to it. Life is found in the word of God. Number two, security is found in the love of God. Eight times in these chapters, Israel says, in what way have we been disobedient? Like present your case. It's like catching your kid with their hand in the cookie jar and they look back at you like, what? What do we do? You don't love me, God says, and then you, you, you gaslight. You, there's nothing more foolish than trying to gaslight God, right? You don't love me yourself, and you accuse me of not loving you. You ever had a similar conversation with your own child? We, we had one in particular and that when we had to discipline, I'm, I'm not going to call her name, but I mean, when we had to discipline her. Um, <laughs> normally, there's this whole presumptuous, you know, jump up in daddy's lap and run into the home office on Wednesdays when I'm preparing sermons, just a quick hug, jump up in the lap, five minutes of conversation, then jump out of my lap and out of the, out of the room, four, five, six years old. Something would go wrong, and we would have to make a correction. And during those times of correction, there was a withdrawal. I, I'm, not, I'm not hugging you now because I'm mad at you right now. That's all right, baby. You don't have to hug daddy. That's fine. I love you anyway. Totally fine. Um, that's what's happening here. Malachi is putting Israel, if you could think of this metaphor, into her father's chair. How many of you, your dad had a chair? Or you are a dad and you got a chair. You come home and you see some snarky teenager with their legs over both sides of you why are you in my chair amen i'm gonna find a bible verse one day to back that up stay out of my chair all right what is it about dad's chair when israel challenges the veracity of god's love for her god has an answer that proves his love and that was before messiah came and now he's come and he died for your sins. And he rose from the dead. He ascended to the Father and he's promised to come back. What, what, what else does he have to do to prove he loves you? What else does he have to do? Come. Even when, in fact, especially when 
you're confronted with a loving call to repent, you'll find the security you're looking for if you just get in your dad's chair. Here's the third promise. Joy is found in the presence of God. And this is where we end. Chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So many people are distracted by things that promise them joy. Money, promotion, a relationship, a certain level of health. I'll tell you what it is around here, and this is, this is going to be as popular as a belch in a crowded elevator, but I'll tell you anyway, because um, it's June and people are starting to go on vacations. Go, go, enjoy. But something I noticed my first year here, I thought, man, we are in the middle of a tourist area. Like, this is one of those beautiful areas. It, it may be the most beautiful area I have ever lived, and it's certainly one of the most beautiful areas I've ever seen, and I've been on five continents, and this is the travelingest bunch of people I have ever met. They got to go to the beach. They got to go to Vegas. They got to go to California. They got to go to Got to go there. Got to go there. And, and I would discover not, not just travel. Look, enjoy. See the world. That, that's wonderful. But some of that wasn't merely enjoying the trip. Some of it was escapism. I got to get away from. It wasn't going there so much as if I go over there, I get away from here. My joy is, is indexed to my geography. Where am I at? All right, I want to be here. I want to be at Ocean City. I don't know why in the world y'all want to go there, but anyway. And that's happening here. And what, what Malachi is warning God's people about is this. You, you're, gonna, you're so distracted, you're going to miss the pivotal point in all of human history. It's coming. It's right here. Pay attention. One of the most tragic things that can be said about a person is when greatness passes by and they don't even see it because they're distracted by something else. God is working at this moment, at the moment this prophecy is written, in powerful ways. And his people are going, hmm, and seeking their joy somewhere else. Someone, some, someone else that's going to let them down. Some other idol that they're going to have to serve, and they're going to miss the most significant moment that ever has or ever will occur in history. And it will lead to spiritual death. And on the other side of that covenant, you and I are now in exactly the same place. And so God calls these sins out of you and me. He lovingly calls us to repent, all of that rooted in his deep love, and he gives us the same promises that he made to Israel. Don't miss your moment like the Israelites did. Because you never know when, like Malachi, the word he sends to you will be the last one. Turn from death to life. Heavenly Father, your word is powerful, and we are grateful for it, even when it sometimes stings. And so, Lord, may today, whatever needs to happen in the hearts and the minds of your people, to bring them to repentance so that they can experience, Lord, not just this isn't for your benefit. You need nothing. This is for their benefit. You call them to a higher level of joy, a more sure promise 
Lord, may they seize that life for all that it's worth and leave behind all those things that ultimately are going to perish, and they with it if they keep relying on those things. May we center our souls on you today, and I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already receive from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.